friends. Welcome to the Aquatong Table. My name is Paul Russell Smith, and this is my Table Read podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, today's show starts with an interview with my friend and client, Phyllis Gerson, who brought me a story of a local New Jersey mobster from the 1920s who's uh, often overlooked in the pantheon of famed organized crime leaders. Um, the interview is roughly a half hour long, and it's followed by a table read of our one-hour pilot for our series entitled Longy. Um, it's something of a disclaimer. I'd like to put it out there that this script contains some racially and ethnically charged language. Um, it's consistent with the time period in which the story takes place. It exists as a sign of the societal threats and obstacles which our protagonists struggle to transcend and is in no way meant to offend anyone. That said, my apologies in advance if it touches a nerve. I hope you enjoy the work, my friends. Again, my many thanks for listening. Welcome to the show, to the Aquatalk Table. I'm happy to have Phyllis Gerson as my guest and my client and friend. Uh, she came to me years ago with a pitch about a New Jersey, a famed New Jersey uh, mobster that was kind of funny because very few people actually know about him. In the pantheon of, uh, you know, of uh, um, American crime bosses, he's probably the one that's, I think, most overlooked, but we'll get to him in a second. Um, so Phyllis, welcome. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you. And you are, uh, your background is in writing and journalism. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, how that all started. What, did you go to school to be a journalist or was that part of your, your whole, uh, well, you know... journalism was like a second career for me after working at a bank for many years. Um, how'd that happen? I How'd did... you go from a bank to journalism? That's kind <laughs> oh of interesting. God. Well, listen, if we're going to go through my resume, this is going to take an hour. No, no, not the resume. Just give me the quick reader's digest version. Like, how did you go from banking to what did no, you get? Like, I'm just willing. a sudden shift? No, um, I think I always was interested in journalism and uh, took classes, you know, journalism classes. And at the same time, was working uh, at a bank and I went to NYU to start getting my MBA. Mm. And when I was there, I started thinking more and more about, um, you know, go, going into journalism like full time. And I switched from the MBA at NYU to the journalism program. At oh, wow. That's a pretty big switch. Yeah. Well, actually, they had a joint MBA. Everything, you know, all these things are always like the long way. I always did everything right. the long way. Yeah, Never I know that feeling way. well. Including, yeah. including this, Please. including my explanation here. <laughs> but um, so they had a joint MBA journalism program. Like, oh, that's a good, that's a good way to just, you know, sidle into this. Um, so I um, did the joint program for like about two seconds. And then I dropped the MBA part oh. and ended up, you know, getting a master's in journalism at NYU and uh, I was waitressing during that time. I quit my job at the bank. And then, uh, yeah, so. Uh, that's a then, real shift. That's a real, that's a like a real shift. life shift. Yeah. I mean, yeah. from, from one, you know, from one world to another, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And then I, uh, I worked at a couple of different newspapers, including the Hunterdon, Hunterdon County Democrat. So oh, yeah. back to our Lambertville, Hunterdon right. roots. And then I went to the Trentonian and then. Uh, ended up going into financial news. And right now I'm not writing. I'm not really doing traditional journalism, mm -hmm. um, but sort of have a, uh, a a job having to do with uh, 
product development and things like that, but still in the journalism world, but not writing for a living in that way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've always known you as as like something of a Lambertville fixture. So the, the hundred and Democrat that's starting to make some sense. So you, you found your way down to the Lambertville area and that's pretty much um, how you met me because I had a, I had a studio down there. Um, but you didn't grow up there. You grew up in, in North Jersey, right? Or in central well, I, Jersey, what we call in, central Jersey, which is, is an arguable place to some people, by the way. I think, um, well, I think it's, I don't know what you would call this a New York metropolitan area. Maybe mm-hmm. I, it's, uh, Essex County. Oh, yeah. And so I lived in Newark, which is in Essex County, then Bloomfield. Okay. Um, then, um, you know, different places during, like I, I was at Yale Law School for a year and I lived in New Haven and I lived in New York for many of those years before mm-hmm. moving back to Bloom, moving back to Lambertville. And, um, and so you had your, your My studio, studio. Yeah. in this building that had the cafe that I went to. The, coffee, the Rojo's coffee shop. Yeah, exactly. In Lambertville. Yeah. Um, my cousin and I would go there and then, um, you know, I started seeing your little sign. What did your sign say? Like, I think it I think had it more to do with classes, learn how to write screenwriting workshops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Screenwriting workshops. Probably an ill-advised business venture. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, well, but, but not you know, to it's me. Funny. So, it's funny, yeah, yeah, and to some other people too, because that's where this whole. It's weird. You start out thinking, like you know, you talk about your career, but you start out thinking that your path is going down one way, and something happens, and it it, it turns it another. But you know, totally. the last. The last podcast that I did with Joy uh, came from the same place. So, yes, yeah. um, so a lot of really good things actually came out of that. What I, I wouldn't exactly yeah. call it a total failure, but, you know, it was something that, uh, that didn't, <laughs> it didn't achieve exactly well, what listen, I wanted when to achieve, all these, that's okay. When all these films start to talk over you and all these films get made, we're definitely going to like gather in that, oh, that building. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, but yeah, it was so, fun. So, that was a fun couple of years it was cool. to you it was a, and everything. It was a cool place too, wasn't it? Yeah, I really enjoyed yeah. it, except I was addicted to the coffee down there at Rojo's, which was a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, but so, okay, so your upbringing <laughs> in Newark that brings us kind of like that that really segues us well into Longy because Longy before Abner Abner Longy's Wilman is the mm-hmm. mobster that we were discussing at the beginning mm-hmm. uh and he's uh he was sort of like the crime boss of Newark um through the 20s 30s 40s and up until his death in the 50s yes right. and he I mean he you know, obviously, it's not like he was a, a, a public figure who wanted all of his information out there, like in very many ways he was secretive. But there is a lot of information out there, a lot of different reports that he swayed, uh, that he was like the crime boy, boss of New Jersey, you mm-hmm. know, and even though he tried to deny it, I mean, he always admitted his bootlegging past, but he tried to deny that there was anything after that. Right. Um, and uh uh, there were, you know, but when you put it all together, you know, the different stories that were written, and there was there's a lot in the local Newark papers. Um, he he definitely was part of the uh, establishment of 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 crime of organized crime in New. But they Jersey. called the National Crime Syndicate, right? I mean, he was yeah. a big part of that. I mean, they that, called right? it all yes, yeah, different all things. things yeah. He was part of the Atlantic City Conference, um, where it's like oh, with Nucky Thompson. Yes, exactly. Right, like famously dozens, depicted uh, in Boardwalk Empire, right? Exactly, right, right. exactly. Yeah. Yep. And um But he doesn't it's interesting because he doesn't show up and I sorry I'm interrupt. He doesn't no, show no, up in, in Boardwalk Empire. I mean, I remember watching that show sort of waiting for him because you know, we're both Jersey natives, born and raised and you know, when you're watching a show that's set in Atlantic City about the mob, you're thinking to yourself, well, we're going to see 
you know, we're going to see this guy come into the picture, but yeah. really he, he didn't. And I was, I always wondered what that choice was about. And I don't, I don't know who I would, who I would ask about that, but uh, um, yeah, that was, yeah. that was an interesting thing for me. I was really hoping to sort of see him because um, you know, I know that your, your father had a bit of a past with him and that's pretty much what got you uh, on, on the path to write a, a bio. This was originally supposed to be a book, right? I mean, this yeah. whole thing was originally yeah, but played just- as it. Just to like take a, if you don't mind, a quick step back, because I think we should probably say some of the people that were at, you know, involved, like some of his associates, like Meyer Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, Dutch Schultz, who, you know, obviously was shot and and, and Zwillman was actually looked at for that. He was like, uh, didn't he become his successor? He became uh, his successor in in Jersey, I think in Northern Jersey is like the... uh, the guy who took over his rackets after um well Dutch i think Schultz and others i mean that i okay. i don't i don't know for sure but that right. was definitely the accusation that you know he and others okay uh, were involved but like if you look at the the list of people who are at atlantic city uh the italians the jews that you know nucky johnson was the one who organized it atlantic city johnson, i mean right, it's yeah. just this loki jo- nucky johnson and um it, it's just such a crazy list of people there's like right. dozens of people that jews italians anybody you know who Who's who? Yeah, it's no small, <laughs> no small players in that list. That's for right, sure. Yeah. Right, you get into right. Lucky Luciano and Mario Lansky, you know, pretty much. And set Capone's it all. there, and you know right. all the different people: Chicago, Philadelphia, right. different. Right. Uh, so anyway, yes. Yeah, he's a he's a very interesting character, and like you know, it, it's funny because until you walked into the studio on that kind of serendipitous day and said, you know, I want to write this story about a a very uh, sort of um lesser known mobster you know from new jersey i i actually said to you is it longies wilman and you were like oh my god how do you know who longies wilman is and the only reason i know is my dad grew up in newark as i think your dad did as well and uh um you know my father told stories about him you know a lot when i was a kid you know i I heard bits and pieces here and there and i was just thinking who is this guy who's this longies i never even heard of him before yeah. You know, so yeah. it was interesting that that sort of our paths crossed on that level, you know, on the paternal level there. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Am I making this up? But I still maintain that I went in there to talk to you about a completely different project. And this kind of came up in passing. I know you, I, I just still think that, but I could be uh, just imagining. That, uh, that kind <laughs> like, of happens a lot. Actually. That's, happened a few, a, that's happened a few times. It was sort of were... like we were talking about this other idea I had. And then somehow right. I said, oh, by the way, you know, I, I wrote this proposal. Oh yeah, maybe that was how it went down. Yeah, about this Jersey Jewish Jersey gangster. I think. Anyway. Did I did I blow off your other idea? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> For this one, in favor of this one. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. I think that's uh, yeah. that's fine. Maybe I did. That's, that's fine. That could be the case. That could be the case. <laughs> well, I still have the other idea. I think we tried on that one too, but we'll 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 have that in another podcast. So um, yeah, for yeah, sure. So. so talk about talk about for a second because I'm, I'm yeah. I I and I know I know about this, but let's let's let some people in on like what what your dad's connection to to Longy's woman was so i mean growing up and i i i spent a few formative years in newark and mm-hmm. uh, my father grew up in newark and uh, well you know i started off in philly and then went to newark later on but just growing up we always heard about uh my father working for my father's nickname was yo by the way because he started off in um in uh, Philly, he got the nickname Yo, and that really like stuck till he died. <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, but he always, you know, it had come up from time to time, like 
back in the, those days, they had like a lot of old movies on TV. It's like so hard to find a Harlow movie these days, just on regular TV, but Gene Harlow. Yeah. Gene yeah. Harlow. And like we, there'd be a Harlow movie on, um, uh, the million dollar movie. Is that what that was called? Oh yeah. Yeah. Channel day? nine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I remember it well. And yeah. it would come up, well, Zwillman had a relationship with Harlow. And who's Zwillman? Well, your father worked for for him, you know? And right. it was sort of like, it would just come up in passing that he he worked for somebody called Zwillman, you know, Longy Zwillman. I never knew his right. first name. Right. And um, like, it just felt so normal, just like um, going to school or something. Oh, yeah, my father worked for this guy, Zwillman. It wasn't until I was old. And I think I've heard this from a lot of people, that things that you would go, wow, at the time when you're a little kid, you're so just used to hearing it. You don't even know it's a wow. And I was like pretty old before I said, well, you know, I was an adult when I said, mm -hmm. well, I should really find out more about this. And I finally sat down with my father and uh, did this, you know, little oral history, which I look at it now and I think, you know, I should have done so much more just about his life. But right. there was a big focus on Longy and so what I learned, like from the age of 17 to 22, he drove for Longy and his organization. Wow. And he started off just working for one of his legit businesses called Public Public Service Tobacco. Okay. Uh, it was run by Les, uh, Mike Lascari. And um, it, my father always talked about he would you know, go to these places that have these cigarette machines and he would just, you know, they would just throw them in there. And like, I don't know, it was just some, some kind of like process that they used to get them in as quickly as possible yeah. and, um, and go on to the next stop. But one day their uh, Longy's regular driver, uh, and it wasn't just Longy, it was Lascari and others, you know, use this other driver. Um, he had an accident and they sent uh, my father to go pick up Longy and uh, and Longy loved my father's driving apparently. And that was <laughs> so and that was it. He became he became it. the driver. And my father always thought my father taught me how to drive. He taught everyone how to drive. Like he just had some, you know, good driver. <laughs> he was a driver. You know, yeah. typical, you know, yeah. People in the Garden State Parkway tolls knew my father, you know. Just, right, right. So um so after that, he uh, after that my father did a lot of like special things. So, like he would hang around the club. They 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 had they were like, I don't know if at this point it was a political club or a Jewish club, but mm -hmm. he uh, you know, they his gang was called the Third Ward Third Ward Gang, the Third right. Ward of, of Newark. And they would like, you know, pick up my father up to start doing special things and you, you want to ask me about one of the special things that yeah. he did? <laughs> yeah, what was one of these special things that he did? Special <laughs> little special, errands. One of the special little errands. Um, there there was a priest, uh, a Nork priest, who later became a Monsignor. And um, Longy sort of, well, at this point, I mean, we really don't know what his motivation was. Right. <laughs> Obviously, he was just somebody who wanted to have influence everywhere and mm -hmm. obviously in Norka's backyard so he was uh delivering like money to this priest and my father would actually uh I, I'm just thinking about this oral history with my father he basically said he you know he gave up his public service tobacco route and um he would come with paper bags literally of five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars and filled with cash with, yeah yeah and he would go to the robert treat hotel he'd give him this ten thousand dollars and <laughs> um longy's gentlemen as he put it they were guarding him and when they saw the money delivered safely to the priest they didn't guard him anymore and his job right. was done and um 
And so, and, and Longy ended up having a very long relationship with this priest and like uh, an interesting relationship that I, you could almost call like a, a good, a close friendship. And yeah, even that's, the, yeah, that's a really interesting part of the whole story, you know, going, going outward with the, the idea for the series is that, you know, he, uh, here's this mobster, Jewish mobster, um, who's, you know, he's, he's, he's widely known in these Newark areas, but at the same time, he's got this very charitable side to him where he's basically supporting this archdiocese and this orphanage, I think in Newark, right. Through this. Well, the archdiocese and this, uh, which I think is still there, the Mount Carmel guilds, uh, Mount Carmel guild, which is a charity. And um, they had a soup kitchen downtown and, and Longy really helped. Fund all uh, help that, right? get help fund all this. That's and, amazing. Um, yeah, he. Uh, he I think that that was. He, part, yeah. Sorry, I mean, I think that that's yeah. part of the the pitch that when we were talking about it, I was sort of like, well, that's, you know, we've all seen the mobster stories of you know, <clears throat> you know the Goodfellas of the world, the Godfather, all that kind of stuff. But you know, when you see something that's got like this Robin Hood feel to it, and I know that I know that the guy was, at the same time, you know, let's not kid around i mean he was a stone killer this guy too he had he had powerful people working for him um and he he did what any organized crime member did was you know they 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 had to get rid of people here and there i'm sure there was violence and there was you know all kinds of activity going on around that but at the same time like this other side of him is really kind of interesting to me you know yeah and he and he, he was yes he was yeah. also known to, well, just to stay stick with the priest. I mean, there's some interesting mm. stories. Um, at, at at early on, that he was a chaplain at Saint Elizabeth's Hospital in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and he had this bungalow. And apparently, um, Longy hired a maid for <laughs> for the priest to take care of the bungalow. He got him a Doberman, um, and over the year, and he ended up funding this uh, camp, this children's camp out um, in in New Jersey in Chester. Mm. And the building still exists and there's some history out there, but, um, and, and, and he, the priest never really denied his relationship with, with Zwilman. Yeah. Um, and, and also Zwilman gave to, uh, you know, to Jews to, uh, in fact, I think there was during his later trial for tax evasion in the fifties, uh, it came out that he had supported a United Jewish appeal, this Sinai congregation, the hillside, the police, mm-hmm. the PBA of Deal, New Jersey, where he had a house, the Newark News Christmas and Fresh Air Funds, the National He had a few, he had a, he, he he had just, a few yeah. legitimate deductions. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. and he, you know, like they say that nobody went without a Thanksgiving turkey with long he was there. And, yeah. and he also gave um, booze to the newspaper reporters. He had like very good relationships with the reporters, which, you know, I thought was kind of interesting. And yeah, in um, reading some of the things that you gave me, some of the, um, uh, you know, some of the research that you gave me, it did seem like his, his real, uh, his real gift was sort of um, keeping people happy, you know, yeah. whether they were police and judges. I mean, I think that that's, that's a, a bigger part of, of these uh, organized crime uh, stories that you don't often see is how, they would, you know, you see it sort of a little bit on the side here, but you see how these these relationships were formed with with cops, and I think that's a there's a there's a bit of that in uh, in this pilot um, that everybody's about to hear. But uh, you know, at the same time, I think that that's that was a really 
that that was sort of his real gift was that he was charming and charismatic. Yeah, he was definitely from, from yes. everything that I could, um, you know, that I could sort of read. And he liked to be. Uh, it seemed like he liked to be. He was kind of he was a little flashy. Like he liked to ha- he liked having Gene Harlow on his arm and, <laughs> uh, you know, driving around in the expensive cars and all of that. All the all the good the good life that went with it. So interesting kind of you know well rounded. Uh, I don't know if well rounded is the right word, but uh, you know, just an interesting a well rounded got gangster, right? Yeah, there. just it's I think funny. when you when you see like you know just the, it's a, the whole the whole scope of it all is really fascinating to me. Um, well, you know the um, the so we uh, a colleague of mine, Ray Hennessy, mm-hmm. both of us actually met working at Trenton newspapers. Right, he was at the Trenton Times, I was at the Trentonian, and we would you know end up at crime seasons together, and then worked worked together later in financial publication. But wow, um, he actual crime scenes like real crime. Oh, yes, yeah. probably crime yeah. reports. Oh, that's what yeah, I mean. yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and uh, that's where we met. But then you know later on. Um, he also had a similar thing. Like I know who's Wilbin is and he yeah. knew about him from something. And he, the two of us were together on this proposal, which we called mob mob mensch. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully people know what mensch is, but yeah, I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, you know, that was a big part of this proposal, which was, I just wanted to mention, like had been rejected by many publishers that, you know, our agent gave it to publishers and they said, well, nobody's heard of this guy, but your take was. Hollywood definitely likes to work from a place of, of, of an art, you know, um, a known concept or a known entity, you know, a book, uh, a graphic novel, you know, a real life story, something like that, something that's tangible. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, when something like this comes up, and you know a producer's really interested in it they kind of dig their they dig their heels in on it and they really get down you know to the grainier grittier parts of it and using boardwalk empire as an example i think that's a perfect example you know i i never heard of they call him uh nucky thompson in the in the oh. show but he's oh, nucky yeah. johnson in real life you right, remind yeah. me of that um but uh you know nobody ever heard and i and i was i was fascinated by that entire atlantic city origin story i just thought it was incredible yeah you know so i think that this is sort of on par with that um and also uh it was a few years after our proposal was rejected mm -hmm. that boardwalk empire came out came on right i mean this so but this feels like a missing piece almost doesn't it like of the of this whole of this whole like organized crime puzzle from back in that day um what and there's a lot what, of layers that you know like the i mean we don't have to get into it too much but there's been a you know book written about he he, he was funding uh uh boxers to kind of uh, uh they, they were called it he organized his third ward gang into the minutemen which was basically trying to disrupt german american bund activities right. and there were mm-hmm. these anti-semitic rallies and he was what once a New York paper, you know, wrote a story that he was at one of these and, and he basically got all his Newark and New Jersey correspondents to to write this statement that, hey, you know, if I was really there, you guys would have known about it, not the right. New York Post. And he, you know, but he did it. He was funding it. And there's information out there about his uh, involvement. In, yeah, that's uh, his, yeah. That's an interesting part about about all of this too is when you get into that uh, you know that um, anti-fascist movement that was going on here in the United States. I don't think a lot of people, you know, fully realize that 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 was actually happening right on our shores before the war. You know, um, I know that they 
I, I watch, I'm a big fan of Peaky Blinders and they, they bring it into that um, last second to last season, I think uh, with the rise of fashion. It's, and it's amazing to watch how right there in mm. Great Britain, in the working class sort of slums of Great Britain, this was taking hold. I mean, these kinds of things were really starting to, to, um, you know, to take effect. Um, you know, after you did all that research on him, I remember you handed me like reams and reams of research. <laughs> what did you think about, about long about longy's woman i mean what were your kind of thoughts about him as like a person did you come away with anything like um that he was sympathetic or did you you know did you have any any sort oh, of definitely you know? definitely i mean if i'm uh-huh. being honest yeah, you yeah. know it it's and maybe because at that point i was just looking at him as a, a an interesting kind of historic literary character yeah and i think and also, you know, my father liked him and he was, he sent my father to California, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, he paid for his, uh, it was during the war. So he paid for his gas ration, gas rations. And it was always sort of a, even though my father still had this fear of talking about Longy, like it was a mix of fear, respect, and, you know, and uh, sort of adoration in a way. Right. Um, but I definitely, I mean, so that fa- that familiar felt, relationship, I was definitely very easy. It was very easy for me to compartmentalize because, okay. you know, you really can't see whatever the evil outcome of things that he might have done. Like I wasn't really that tuned into that. Sure. You know, right. Right. Um, there's a lot of things that are happening around our mm-hmm. lives today that seem a lot more evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, so sure. I, I definitely, I think I did feel pretty sympathetic. And, you know, and also I, I'm very interested in historic archives and just research and journalism. We tried to, we just did so much research because that's how we thought about things. Like, let's right. find out as much as possible. But then it turns out nobody really wanted all that research, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. You know, well, maybe somebody will in the future, but yeah. Right, right. So, but yes, I think it was a, yeah. So you had that familial relationship through your dad that really kind of grounded this whole thing for you, right? As a, as a starting point, which is. Yeah. Yeah. And also just, you do hear a lot about his philanthropy Mm -hmm. in Newark and whatever, for whatever reason, if you read Newark, there's different Newark, you know, websites or, you know, blogs and things like that. And everybody's just, you know, love Longy, you know, it's just for, you know, for whatever reason we, you know, people seem to, uh, you know, gravitate toward him as some kind of heroic figure, whether right or wrong. But yeah, yeah, he's not here to defend himself. So, so on a whole other level, though, you know, springing off of that, was your was your dad a a storyteller? I mean, do you do you feel like you get some of that from him? Like this desire to bring a story to to the world? I mean, I I am. I mean, my father was without a doubt. Uh, for me, the single greatest storyteller I ever heard in my life. Wow. So, yeah. uh, but you know, but he was, it was, it was a talent that was <laughs> kind of, I, I don't know. It, 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 it was like every Saturday for us. You know, like that was, that was part of our ritual was, you know, doing some work with him outside and then listening to him tell these kinds of stories, you know, and, and one of them was, you know, like I told you before was him and his young friends, his little buddies stealing a pinball machine from Longy's Wilman when he was a oh kid. Oh my God. Yeah. Talk, going, talk about that. It's yeah. So uh, he just had yeah. this, this throwaway story about, Oh, when we were kids, you know, uh, you know, uncle Mort and I snuck into a, uh, 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 his little hideout, one of his hideouts, and with our friends, and we stole a pinball machine. We walked out and we put a tarp over. And we carried it down the street. We brought it to our place, and they got caught by him. Like you know, he called them out on it. Um, probably had some level of respect for them for doing it. But that was just one of those. 
that was just one of those little toss away stories. But like, yeah. you know, going back to when my dad was a little kid, my grandfather was a sheet metal worker uh, living in Newark. My dad, my dad was born and raised on Peshine Avenue and he was from his, his people were from Scotland and he was, um, he knew how to make all the stills and the containers and the piping and things to make uh, rye whiskey. So he used to make rye whiskey in the bathtub in their little, you know, tenement flat in Newark. And my father said he couldn't take a you couldn't take a, a bath for or a shower for like two or three weeks when that was going. And they all had to go to the the aunt's house, you know, upstairs mm-hmm. or downstairs to, to take a shower. Cause and then he would load up these bottles into uh an old model a ford and my father as a little kid would sit on them and they would go down and and he would deliver them to like you know to the uh to the speakeasies i guess and things like that that were that were part of longies women's establishment so there's that familial kind of touchstone for me too in all of this but you know i was just wondering like what you thought about about him as a person we do tend to like look the other way on the more nefarious things when yes, you know we're yeah. watching these uh um these um these gangster movies and things you know that yeah. it's it's part of our it's part of our culture you exactly know? and it's sort of almost you know he's larger than life um but the uh i thought no i mean i i don't know if i got the storytelling from my father but i think it's he he's just a link to this historic time of right. you know like long he started off as a push push cart peddler Mm -hmm. you know i mean there was just a lot of poor jews in newark Mm -hmm. you know and this is you know poor immigrants and other immigrants and it was you know a big melting pot of poor immigrants and uh i just think historically it's just an interesting time you know to to write about and it's something that's pretty much gone you know it's uh in a lot of places um and it's just kind of interesting to uh to look back at at what it was like you know and um yeah well maybe we should do something about our fathers (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so anyway Um, what do you what do you you hope what do you hope from this project ultimately i mean from from you know doing this pilot i mean what what do you hope to see that this becomes a bigger yeah, that somebody somewhere out there picks up this story. Oh and, yeah, sure, and this, yeah. sure. Why not? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't really we you know we couldn't really redo our proposal because both of us are working journalists. So, mm-hmm. you know, we probably I think we could have if we had the time done something. So I just feel like, you know, you doing a you know, working on this script kind of like brought him to life again. Cast list. The part of Abner Longy's Wilman was read by Jevin Holtz. The part of Abraham's Wilman was read by Ron Ferguson. The part of Max Wilman was read by Josh Holtz. The part of Ella's Wilman was read by Lucy Perone. The part of Tommy Riley was read by Theodore Grasso. The part of the Gambling Woman was read by Diana Villanova. Music by Brian Wetterburn. Special thanks to Hagen's Recording Studio in Princeton, New Jersey for their studio and post-production work. Longy, series pilot, Rufter Langer, written by Phyllis Plitch and Paul Russell Smith. Rufter Langer, over black, a voice is singing, more like a chant in monotone, the strange foreign dialect of Hebrew. Fade in, interior synagogue day, a cantor stands at the beer, his deep baritone singing from his soul. Abner's Wilman, 13, stands at a long table. Wrapped in a shawl, his eyes are closed as he listens. Abner opens his eyes as the cantor finishes the last line. He's a handsome kid, but above all, he's tall. The rabbi steps up next to Abner and lifts the covered Torah from the table. Abner towers over him.
Abraham's woman, 43, sits in the synagogue. He's nodding in time to the cantor's cadence. A very serious man with heavy eyes he carries, weary like so much luggage. Still, Abraham manages a smile at Abner. The woman beside him takes his hand. Abraham looks to Ella's woman, 35, as she wipes tears from her eyes. She's well-dressed and beautiful, neither a line on her face nor a hair out of place. She reaches over and clutches her husband's hand. On the other side of Abraham, Max Wilman, 41, stifles a yawn. He leans into Abraham. Where does he get that height from? Abraham shrugs. I think he'd been putting cow shit in his shoes. That's what I think. Max. The rabbi sidles up. Abraham reaches out and bows his head. He touches the covering with reverence. He draws his hand away. Abner watches from the table. The rabbi holds there for a moment. He looks at Max with expectation. Abraham glares at his younger brother. Max rolls his eyes and reaches out. He taps the covering. Then he waves his hand. The rabbi fixes his gaze on Max. Disappointment. He moves on to the other men in the seats. Thanks for making a good show of it. Max waves his brother off. Superstitious nonsense, if you ask me. Shh, the two of you. They quiet down. Max leans into Abraham. That boy of yours grew up fast. They both lock eyes with Abner, two world-weary men staring up at this dark, rugged man-child. He did. He's the one, Max. There are big things in store for that boy. A lawyer, maybe even a judge, like Brandis. One day, he'll be the one standing before a jury. You watch. Oh, I'll be watching him, all right. Exterior, Newark, Clinton Street, Day. Graying tenement buildings rise from the cobblestone streets. Super title, Newark, New Jersey, 1917. Horses pull wagons full of hay and ice. Peddlers with vegetable carts hawk their bounties. Men sit on box crates and folding chairs, playing pinochle around the stoops, and kids play stickball in the street. Interior apartment, day. Abner stares out at the window at all of it. A small gathering of family surrounds the table, packed together like sardines. Max and Abraham sit in armchairs, reading the papers. Max is focused on the horse racing sheets, the sports. Abraham sits beside a pile of newspapers, some Yiddish, some English, peering over his glasses at the print. The Russian government has collapsed, Max. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. They say a revolution is right around the corner with this Lenin character. Right. You're hopeless, you know that? I don't worry about things that I can't control, Abe. Ella lands a huge roasted chicken in the middle of the table. Abner, come away from the window now. Your father wants to say a blessing. Max steps up to Abner. Go on, kid. I'll keep an eye on those cheating pikers for you. Abner smiles at his uncle. Wish I was out there with him. That makes two of us. Go on now. Eat. You can play ball after. Abner makes his way over to the table. Abraham rises. He lights two more candles and begins to recite a prayer in Hebrew. Abraham finishes the prayer. He walks around the table to Abner, who rises to meet him. How I love this son of mine. I see great and powerful things in your future, Abner. And, with God's help, I'll be there every step of the way to see them happen. Today, I'm a very proud father. Today, you took the laws of Moses, and now, now you are a man. Abraham hugs Abner as the rest look on smiling. Ella rises and hugs her son. Max watches from the window. He turns his attention to the game on the street. Exterior street, day. Abner steps out of the apartment building and bounds down the steps. He runs into the street where he's immediately greeted by the other boys. Abraham and Max follow. They sit on the stoop and light up cigarettes. That was some meal. It was. Now I just have to figure out how to pay for it. What? Ella bought it on credit. From Sai? No, over at Wolfson's. Really? Mm-hmm. She should have gone to Sai. She wouldn't have paid anything for it. I know. 
She doesn't want charity. Max laughs. I'll settle it for you with Wolfson. Don't worry about it. Don't do that, Max. Please. Forget it. My gift to the kid. Abraham nods. Thank you. You know, we've been having... Well, it's been tough at work. Don't say another word. Max throws his arm around his older brother. They turn their attention to the kids. Tommy Riley, a freckle and acne-faced kid, takes a practice swing at the plate. Just what we need. Another heap. Irving Epstein, the 14-year-old fireplug of a pitcher, spins around at that last comment. Hey, buster! No offense. Go on. Keep him. We're killing you guys anyways. You need all the help you can get. Ain't that right, fellas? The sidewalk is lined with five or six other Irish kids. They all laugh. Play right field, Longy. Thanks, Irv. On Max. Did that kid just call him Longy? They all call him that. His height. His mother hates it. What about him? Doesn't seem to bother him. Irving pitches the pink rubber ball. Riley smacks it deep into right. Abner goes back, reaching up with his right hand, he snatches the ball out of the air. Yowza, what a catch. Look who showed up just in time. They change sides. Abner trots in with the ball. He flips it to Riley with a smile as he passes him. How could you miss it? <laughs> Christ, you're halfway to the moon up there already. That's funny, Tommy. Sheeny goon. Abner stops. He turns to face Riley. What did you call me? You heard me. Or it doesn't sound travel that high. Abner steps up to Riley. It travels just fine. You want to say something, tough guy? Say it to my face. Well, come on down here, and I will. Abner sees his father on the stoop, watching. He stoops down to the punk's level. You're a sheeny goon. Abner goes after Riley. He reaches to grab him, but it's awkward. And this Irish kid knows what he's doing. He dodges Abner's advance and gives him two good blows to the midsection. Abner doubles over in pain. He pulls himself up and they square off. Abraham rises from the stoop. Abner! Max reaches out and gets Abraham by the shoulder as he steps off the stoop. Let him go. Abner moves to the left. He steps forward and swings at Riley, misses him by inches. Riley counters with a jab to the face followed by a sharp overhand right. Abner's head snaps back like it's on a hinge. Enraged, he rushes Riley. Both teams pair off, each rooting for their own fighter. Riley dodges and hits him three more times, two to the body. When Abner doubles over, the kid throws three uppercuts. Abner falls to his knees, his face a bloody mess. Thanks for dropping in, Longy. And Riley lays one across Abner's jaw. It sends him to the cobblestones. Abraham jumps off the sidewalk. That's enough! Scatter, fellas. Here comes Moses himself. The Irish kids peel off in six different directions. Irving and some of the other boys pull Abner to his feet. Abraham stops short of seeing his bloodied and battered son, a look of horror on his face. But Max steps forward smiling. He lifts Abner's head by the chin and looks him over. Now, now, he's a man. Max hands Abner his handkerchief. He wipes the blood from his mouth and nose. He stares at his uncle through his swollen eye, and he smiles. Irving and the boys shuffle him back to the stoop where Ella is already waiting. I'm sorry, Mama. Ella dabs at Abner's mouth with a handkerchief. You didn't back down, Abner. That's what matters. Ella, please, take him inside. Ella walks Abner into the apartment. He took a good beating, Abe. That's one tough kid you got there. Abraham watches as Abner disappears into the apartment building. Dissolved to exterior street, day. Abraham walks in the brisk winter wind. Abner follows behind him with his three sisters, Bessie, 17, Edie, 10, and Frida, 7. His brother Barney, 9, holds the youngest girl's hand. Ella brings up the rear. She pulls her shawl around her shoulders and winces in the wind. I don't understand why we have to go to school today, Pop. It's not even Saturday. 
Because we need to pray, Abner. Pray? Pray for what? For the end of the war in Europe. You think prayer is going to fix that? Abraham wheels around on his son. President Wilson just passed the Selective Service Act. They're going to start calling boys to arms, Abner. Young boys. Maybe three or four years older than you. Abner looks deep into his father's eyes. He sees fear. Let's get inside. It's freezing here. Do you understand what that means, Abner? No. You're poor, and you live in the city of Newark. If this war goes on for years, one day, they will come for you. They will come for you first. Why me? Because they always come for us. Interior synagogue day. Abner sits and watches his father as he prays. Exterior sidewalk later. Abner pulls his coat tight around him. It's obviously too small. He does his best to cover his neck with the frayed collar. He turns the corner and sees his Uncle Max standing in a doorway with a man. The man hands Max an envelope. I'll have the rest for you next week. Saturday is better. I don't get paid until Tuesday, Max. Okay, look, I'm reasonable. Tuesday is fine. We'll just sweeten the vigorish. Just a little bit. Five points. Max. That or Saturday? Okay, five more points. Max slaps the man on the shoulder and he leaves, head down. Abner, come on, get out of the cold. Hi, Uncle Max. Where'd you get that coat? Oh, uh, I I don't know. I've had it for a long time. Barely fits you. Mama says I'll get a new one next year. Right. Always next year. What did you want to see me about? You got a couple of minutes? I I think so. Come on, take a walk with me. They walk up the street. How are those bruises coming along? Okay, my mom put some chicken on them. You're supposed to put steak on them. You know we've never had steak in our house, Uncle Max. Right. Stick with me, kid. We'll change all that. Interior gymnasium day. Max and Abner enter. It's a hazy gray place, industrial. Daylight barely makes it through the upper transom windows covered in soot and grime. Fighters skip rope and punch heavy bags throughout. Some spar with one another in far corners and over areas covered in hay. In the middle of it all, a ring. Two men go at it hard. One of them, the short fire plug of a man, is really giving the taller guy a beating. A water boy ambles past. He bumps into Abner, spilling water on his shoes. The kid adjusts his glasses. This is Izzy. He's 17, and not quite all there. Sorry about that. Lefty, the crusty manager working with two fighters, sees it. Water! Come on, kid, pay attention. Bring that water over here. Izzy shuffles past Abner and Max. You know who that is? The short one. Abner squints. No, I'm not really up on fighting, Uncle Max. Yeah, so I've noticed. That's Benny Leonard, kid. He's probably the greatest lightweight in the world. Wow. Benny pounds his sparring partner into the turnbuckle. The bell rings. Benny relents. He walks back to his corner. I want you to meet him. Okay. Max and Abner walk toward the ring. Benny! Benny sees Max coming. Well, if it isn't the mighty Max. What's new, pal? You're looking good in there. It's a job, you know. Benny, this is my nephew, Abner. Benny reaches out his glove. Abner taps it. Nice to meet you. Abner. Abner, huh? Kids call him Longy. You know, because he's tall. Longy. Yeah, that's good. So your uncle here tells me you took a licking in the street the other day. Yes, sir. You put your hands up to another man? I did. Yes, sir. Well, at least you didn't run away, right? No. No, sir, I didn't. Look, Longy, you come around here a couple times a week... The fellas, they'll show you a thing or two. Really? Sure. You can sling water with Izzy over there. But this is for us only in here, right? No outsiders. No, sir. Looks like a good kid, Max. You vouch for him? I do. 
Come by Saturday morning. I have shul on Saturday. Benny and Max exchange a look. His father. He's a real man of God. All right. Come in after shul, then. Abner nods. He turns and walks off with Max. Uncle Max, he wants me to come in on Shabbos. Don't worry about it. We'll work that out. Interior synagogue day. Abner fidgets in his seat. His father watches him. Interior apartment day. Abner pours over the papers. Ella does the crosswords. Abner pulls on his coat and hat. Where are you going? Out for a walk. On Shabbos? It's just a walk, Abe. He needs his exercise. Abner smiles at his mother. Abraham nods, returns to his papers. Don't stay out too long, and don't get into any trouble. Abner exits. Interior gymnasium day. Abner hands out towels to the fighters. He helps Izzy with the water buckets. He mops the locker room area. Interior school day. Abner walks the halls. His books are bound together with twine. He sees Riley and his Irish gang a few feet down the hall. Riley approaches Abner and passes him by without a glance. Abner moves on, a little relieved. Then, his books go flying. Riley laughs as Abner wheels on him. The girls along the hall try not to laugh as Abner backs away. He stoops to pick up his books. Exterior, gymnasium day. Abner races up the sidewalk. He slides along the ice, stopping at the battered iron door. Across the street, Abraham watches as his son raps on the door. It slides open and Abner disappears inside. Interior, gymnasium later. Abner hits the heavy bag. A fighter coaches him. Your power comes from your legs and hips, kid. You gotta keep those legs bent. When you throw that punch, it comes from here. Watch. Hold the bag. Abner hugs the bag from behind. The fighter demonstrates. Abner feels every thud of the glove. Cut to shadow boxing area later. Abner works out against his own shadow. Lefty watches from the heavy bag area. No, no, no. You're turning the wrong way, kid. You're no southpaw. You jab with the left. Look, like this. Lefty turns Abner around. He pushes his left hand out from his shoulder. You got a good long reach, kid. This is going to be your best weapon. The jab, the uppercut, and the overhand right. Boom, boom, boom. Lefty demonstrates the punches. See? But you're tall. If you let anybody get inside here, they're going to murder you. Got that? Use that long arm to keep him back. Use this big overhand right to shock the hell out of him. And use a tight uppercut to kill him. Lefty watches as Abner imitates him. You got it? I got it. Interior apartment night. Abner enters. He shakes the snow from his coat and hangs it on the hook, then his hat. Dinner is on the table, and everyone is seated. You're late, Abner. I'm sorry. Where were you? I, I was at the library. I, I have a test coming up in math. Abner sits. Abner, I've always done my best to bring you upright, and I've never raised my voice in anger toward you. Yes, sir. But I have to tell you, son, that I am furious that you would blatantly lie to my face. Abraham. No. You stay out of this. I saw you outside that sweatshop on Market Street. I saw you go in, and I waited for you to come out. It got so cold I had to come home. Abner shrinks in his seat. What are you doing in that godforsaken place? Abner stays silent. He looks to the floor. Abraham jumps from his seat and launches himself at the boy. Answer me. What are you doing down there? He pulls the boy from his seat and shakes him. Don't lie to me again. What are you doing at that place? Abner starts to cry. Learning to fight, Papa. Abraham freezes. He exchanges glances with Ella. Why? Why do you need to know how to fight? And now Abner straightens up. He looks his father in the eye with a burning anger. Because I got beat. His father sees the change in his son. He pulls back from him. 
And that's not going to happen again, Papa. Ever. Abner storms out of the room. Interior bedroom, night. Abner sits on his bed, staring out the window. There are three other beds around him. Abraham enters. He closes the door. He sits on the bed beside Abner, and he stares out the window with his son. Papa? Yes. Is it wrong in the eyes of God to want more? To pray for more? Abner turns and looks in his father's eyes. Only if it comes at the price of your humanity. I'm tired of doing without. The rest of the world has automobiles and nice clothes. They live in homes with a yard and a front porch. Why can't we have those things, Papa? Because I don't make that much money, Abner. And what I do make, I spend to feed this family, put a roof over our heads. What little is left over, it goes under my mattress so that one day you can maybe go to college. College? Oh, it won't be enough, what I save, but it'll be something. And then, when you get out of college, you'll get a good job and maybe help me take care of the rest. College? Law school? Who knows? Maybe one day you'll sit on the Supreme Court. That's my dream for you. Maybe that's just a dream. No, it's not. You can have everything you want in life, Abner. But hurting people? That's no way to go about it. I know how you look up to your Uncle Max. He knows people. I know. I know. Do you think they respect him? I don't know. I'm telling you, they don't. They give him things and help him along the way because they're afraid of the people he knows. They're afraid they might get hurt. That's not power. He gets a lot of nice things, Papa. He eats out restaurants and he wears nice suits. I know. You see this. But his time will come, Abner. God forbid. But it will happen. You'll get much more out of life if the people around you love you. Let them fear the rest. That's fine but not my son. You will lead men, Abner, and you will do great things, and you'll have a house with a porch and a yard, and I'll bounce your children on my knee there. Abner smiles. His father pulls him in. And they will all love you. You mark my words, Abner. They will all love you. The two sit on the bed bathed in the blue moonlight. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior street, day. Fresh snow covers the sidewalks and stoops. The horse's hooves pulling the carriages of ice fall silent. Interior, apartment, day. Abner and the other kids rush through the breakfast. Abner rises and pulls on his coat. Abraham enters pulling on his tie. Abner, you need to shovel the walk before you leave for school. But I'm already late. One quick pass. Do the stoop, too. Those steps get very slippery. Papa, it's still snowing. It's a waste of time. Abraham glares at his son. Ella sees it. Abner, do as your father says. It will only take a moment. Abner yanks on his cap and exits. Interior hallway, day. Abner reaches out and grabs the shovel as he walks past. Interior street, day. Abner exits the tenement house. He makes a half-assed attempt at shoveling the steps. At the bottom, Abner leaves the shovel against the stoop and walks off. Interior gymnasium, day. Abner enters. The place is empty, except for Benny, who is shadowboxing with Lefty. What gives, kid? You're supposed to be in school. Snow day. Besides, I'd rather be here anyways. I know that feeling. Well, the ring needs mopping up. Abner nods. He hustles toward the back storeroom. Exterior apartment, same time. Abraham exits the building. He descends the steps, slipping on the last two. He barely catches himself on the railing, wincing in pain. Oh, my back. Abraham picks up the shovel and starts to clean off the steps. 
Then he goes to work on the sidewalk. Interior apartment, stairwell day. The other three Zwilman children clamber down the stairs. Ella is behind them. Barney, make sure your coat is buttoned all the way. Mom. And pull your scarf together. It's cold out. Bessie opens the front door. Ella's words trail off as her eyes go wide. Abraham is on the sidewalk on his side, the shovel across his body. Abraham! She pushes past the children and rushes down the stairs. Interior apartment, night. Abner enters. Ella is at the table. She is alone. Hi, Ma. Hello, Abner. Where is everyone? They're in the bedroom. Where's Papa? Ella looks away. She's starting to come undone. Mama? Abner, your father, had a heart attack this morning. He was cleaning the snow from the sidewalk. Abner's mouth hangs open. Is he okay? Where is he? The bedroom door opens a crack. Abner can see Barney looking out at him, tears streaming down the boy's face. Your father is dead, Abner. Abner slumps into a chair at the table. He hangs his head. No, that can't be right. It all happened very quickly. It's all my fault. No, his heart was weak. The doctor said so. Ella reaches out and places her hand on Abner's hand. We look for you at school to tell you. I think you were probably at that gym, yes? Abner lifts his head. He's crying. He nods. But I don't know where this gym is. I searched on Market Street. I overheard Papa scolding you. But it's just metal doors and windows. Who can find it? Abner starts to sob. Mama, I'm so sorry. And he collapses in her arms. She pulls him in tight as he weeps. Where is he? Downstairs, at the Epstein's. Abner lifts his head and looks into his mother's eyes. We didn't want to bring him up the stairs. Besides, they have more room there. Exterior apartment building, day. Abner stands on the stoop. He's dressed in a threadbare suit. Black armband fitted around the bicep area. Mourners file past him and through the open door. Irving fights his way through the crowd. He takes a place beside Abner. Getting crowded in there. Abner nods. Yeah. I'm going down to the corner to get your uncle a pack of smokes. He asked me, you want to come with? No, thanks. Suit yourself. Irving starts down the stairs. Your uncle told me to ask you. He said it might not be the best thing for you to watch that. Maybe you should come with. Abner shakes his head no. I'll be fine. Irving steps into the street. He sees a line of men coming toward him. Big men. What in the hell is this? Abner looks past the passerby to see Benny, Lefty, and all the fighters from the gym coming toward the apartment. They turn and make their way up the stoop. Benny shakes Abner's hand as he passes him by. My condolences, Longy. Lefty does the same. They all do. Abner straightens. This means something to him. He looks to Irving, who is slack-jawed on the sidewalk. That's Benny Leonard. Yeah. You know him? I do. How? Izzy brings up the rear, looking sharp in his suit. He's teaching Longy how to fight. Believe me, nobody's ever going to want to tangle with that kid. Dissolve to exterior, street, day, another stickball game. Superimposed title, two years later. Longy is pitching. He's even taller than he was, thicker through the upper body as well. He winds up and throws hard. Irving sends the ball sailing over the street. All of the kids watch as the ball bounces into the intersection. We follow the ball as it hops up on the sidewalk. It hits the black leather boot of a pair of passing feet. There are half a dozen pair of boots following to match it. Riley and his gang. They step off the curb and into the street. Jewish merchants have pushcarts filled with flowers, vegetables. Hot soup simmers from steaming metal pots. Riley passes by a fruit stand and grabs some apples. He takes a bite out of one and flips the other in the air. One of his lackeys catches it and eats it. Hey, hey you there. You need to pay for that. Riley stops. His gang surround the vendor. 
says you. You bet your ass, says me. Nickel for the two apples. Riley digs into his pocket. He comes up with a nickel. Oh, I'm sorry. He flips the nickel in the air. The vendor misses it, and it plinks to the ground. The vendor scrambles for it. Riley mule kicks the leg of the stand, and the entire display of fruit comes down on top of the vendor. Fruit rolls into the streets. The gang members scramble for it. The vendor lifts his head to see Riley standing over him. You, you little son of a bitch. Riley kicks him right in the face. The vendor goes down. Mr. Meyer, a neighboring silk merchant, rushes in to help the injured fruit vendor. Riley walks off, passing the empty silk cart. Mr. Meyer watches as the kid grabs a handful of kerchiefs. The other merchants are torn between leaving their stalls and helping the friend. Ruffdelanger! Ruffdelanger! Riley passes by the soup merchant. Ruffdelanger? What the hell is that? Some kind of code? The soup merchant stiff arms Riley, stopping him cold. It means call the tall one. Riley opens his mouth to speak. A sharp whistle cuts him off. Riley turns to see Longy, pulling his two fingers from his lips. Longy and his stickball team have the street blocked. You going somewhere, Riley? Yeah, I am. Soon as I'm done whipping your ass, Abner. Well, we'll just see about that. Careful now. Your pops ain't here to throw in the towel for you when things get rough. You should have stayed in your part of town, Riley. You should have shoveled the walk. Longy's eyes go wide. He puts his fists up. He's pissed. Let's go. The two gangs start to fight. Fists are flying and boys are rolling in the gutters. The merchants circle their wagons. All of them cheer on Longy and the boys. Riley circles around Longy. Longy waits. Riley moves in. He feigns a hook and catches Longy going for it. Riley doubles up to Longy's midsection. It's like hitting a brick wall. Longy pushes off a Riley and snaps his head back with a jab. Then another. Then another. The little Irish pug is seeing red. He bull rushes Longy. But Longy counters everything. He hits Riley with a jab. Then the overhand right then the uppercut, and it's lights out for Riley. He goes down hard on the pavement. The rest of the fighting dies down as the cops arrive in motor wagons. Officer Pruitt, 24 and lean as a bull, is the first one in the mix. All right, what's going on down here? Mr. Meyer steps in as Pruitt grabs Longy by the coat. The Irish boys came in and raised a ruckus, officer. They tipped over the carts and hit me across the face. This true? It is. Pruitt lets go of Longy. He grabs Riley and drags him to his feet. You got a lot of explaining to do, young fella. Officer. Pruitt turns to face the kid. It's over. We settled things. Just a bunch of kids getting into a scrape. You're trying to tell me how to do my job? Why, you little punk. No, sir. It's just that it's Friday. It's late. I'm sure the last thing you want to do is fill out a bunch of paperwork over a little street fight. Pruitt considers it. He turns to Mr. Meyer. You're pressing charges? Mr. Meyer looks to Longy. Longy closes his eyes and shakes his head slowly. No. No, officer. The boy is right. Good enough. And you. I'd better not catch you in making trouble in this part of the town again. Pruitt slaps Riley across the ears and face. You hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Now get out of here. He pushes Riley and the kid takes off running. Pruitt turns to Longy. He nods at him. You knocked out the toughest kid in town. Yes, sir. Knocked him out. Longy nods. Who taught you to fight like that? Some friends? Pruitt looks him over one more time. Carry on. He turns his back on Longy and waves his officers toward the motor wagon. Officer Pruitt. Pruitt turns. You like fights? You know. Much as the next fella, uh, yeah? I got a couple of extra tickets for tonight, over at Sinclair. They're yours if you want them. Benny Leonard is on the card, and this Dempsey guy is a real comer, I hear. What's the catch? No, no catch. I can't go the fights on the Sabbath. Longy extends the tickets to the cop. 
Pruitt looks over both shoulders. He takes them. Anybody ask questions? I'm coming back for you for answers. Enjoy the fight, sir. Pruitt nods at Longy. He extends his hand. It's nice to see a little respect for the law for a change. Longy gulps hard. He shakes it. Who taught you how to shake hands? No one. It shows. Work on your grip. I will. See you around. Yes, sir. Enjoy the fights. Longy watches as Pruitt moves to the wagon. Longy turns to see the merchants, Mr. Meyer and the rest staring at him. Abner, I have a proposition for you. Yeah? What's that, Mr. Meyer? A proposition is an offer. A deal. I know what a preposition is, Mr. Meyer. I'm asking you what you have in mind. Oh, a chance to make some money. I'm all ears. Cut to exterior Clinton Street day. Longy is pushing a cart filled with fruits and vegetables. He stops and stands on the corner. People pass by as he sets up the display. Apples roll into the street. Longy goes after them and fits them back into place. He stands and he waits. Interior apartment, night. Longy sits at the table with Ella, a few crumpled bills and a handful of change on the cloth in front of them. What are we going to do? We'll be eating a lot of vegetables throughout the winter. It's so much more than just food, Abner. It's coals for the stove and rent, and your little sister needs new shoes. I'll find a way, Mama. Maybe I'll sell whiskey off the cart. Ella glares at him. No. Oh, Mama, everyone is doing it. There isn't a drop in a gin mall in all of Newark. It's only a matter of time before it's a law. Congress is going to pass the Volstead Act any day now. That's right. You'll be in prison before I even know it. Selling illegal liquor. The idea of it. It's just an idea. We need more money, Mama. Then I'll go to work. You? Where? Edison Electric Light. It's only right over in Harrison. I hear they're hiring girls because of all the men that went off to fight. Girls, Mama? You're no girl. Well, we have to do something. Longy rises. He stoops and kisses her on the head. Don't worry too much. I'll think of something. Maybe Prince Street isn't the best spot for me to sell. Maybe you need to be where the money is in this town. Maybe I do. Exterior Clinton Street Day, a tree-lined residential neighborhood overlooking the city. Longy stands behind his fruit stand. It's a beautiful day and his display has grown. Various women reach over the cart and pick up pieces of fruit, inspecting each one. A man in a sharp double-breasted suit and a fedora steps up to the display. This is Frank Dunn. He palms a couple of oranges and watches as the women around him shop. Frank approaches Longy as two women leave. You're doing some nice business up here, kid. Better than where I was before. Now where was that? Prince Street. Yeah, that's a dump. I know. I live there. No offense. None taken. Listen, kid, I see the crowd you're drawing here. I'm wondering if you'd be interested in making some more money. Sure. Doing what? You familiar with the numbers? The numbers? Uh, no. No, I'm not. A woman steps up to the cart. She's holding a rutabaga and some beets. How much for the beets? Eight cents a bunch. Eight cents? That's not bad. Ma'am, you play the numbers? Sure I do. See that? Where do you go for them? Oh, I have to go all the way down to the German butcher on Elizabeth Avenue. Thanks, I was just curious. She ambles away. Frank looks at Longy. They pick numbers and write them down on a card. Ten cents. Maybe a quarter, whatever. We take half. Put the other half in a pot. If your numbers come up when we draw, boom, you're a winner. Get it? Sure, but why me? What do I have to do with any numbers? These housewives up here go nuts for it. They're bored, and they got money. Gives them something to look forward to. And from the look of things, they like to shop with you. Longy looks at all the ladies in his stall. So how about it, kid? You in? Sure. I'm in. I own a little brewery downtown. Come down after you're done here and we'll go over some of the details. I will. Thanks. Interior apartment building, basement, night. A group of five or six boys, all between 15 and 17, are playing cards. Among them are Izzy and Irving, both smoking. 
Paper cartons of beer are out on the table. Longy enters. About time. We need a fifth. We got five, Irv. Yeah, but you're terrible. You sit this one out. Aw, come on. Abe, get your seat. I'll keep it warm for you, Izzy. All right. Longy sits. Seven-card draw. Deuces wild. Penny ante. Penny ante, huh? High stakes. Get this guy. What? You sold a couple of extra kumquats today? The boys all laugh. Longy reaches into his pocket. Irving lifts his eyes from his cards in time to see a huge bankroll of cash hit the table. Irving sits up straight. Holy smoke, where'd you get that? A new, uh, business opportunity presented itself to me. What is it? The numbers game. Fellas, I think the Happy Ramblers have spent their last Friday night in a damp basement. The boys cheer. They come around the table, slapping Longy on the back as he lifts the bankroll from the splayed-out cards. Exterior street, Clinton Hill, day. Longy mans the fruit stand. Women leave small stacks of change on the table beside the cart. Longy writes down their numbers. He wraps the coins in the numbers and hands them over to Izzy. Izzy places all the wrapped coins in a leather satchel and waits for the next round. Cut to, exterior, side street, day. Irving stands at a door to a small multifamily. He has a burlap sack under his left arm. A woman in curlers and a housecoat places two dimes in Irving's palm. Bring me back a winner, will you, Irving? That's the money I owe the milkman. I'll do my best, Mrs. Wileski. She hands him a slip of paper. Do better than that, or we'll all be in trouble. Irving wraps the dimes in the paper and leaves the stoop. We watch as he goes to the next house. He knocks on the door. An attractive woman in her late 20s opens the door. This is Fiona Hubanko, and she's done herself up for the visit. She's surprised and not too happy to see Irving. Oh, hello, Irving. Hello, Mrs. Hubanko. Here are your apples and your cabbage. Thank you. Where's Longy? He had to watch over the stand. It got real busy down there. I'm on his route today. Fiona looks totally dejected. Irving hands her the vegetables. She hands him a dollar and her slip of paper. A dollar? You're betting a dollar? That's right. Mrs. Hubanko, you know your odds are 600 to 1. I know, and when my number comes in, you boys are going to owe me $600, and you better tell that Longy's Willman I want him to deliver it personally. Irving laughs. Yes, ma'am. He leaps off the porch and jumps the short hedgerow bordering the next yard. Exterior Clinton Street Day, Izzy helps an older woman pick out celery from the drain tubs. Irving runs into the stand as Longy pulls his apron off. How'd you do? Great. Boy, oh boy, does that Hubanko dame have the hots for you, my friend. Knock it off. She bet a whole buck. A buck? I hope Frank can cover that kind of action. Have you seen how much that guy is raking in? He just bought a brand new Peerless. All right, Izzy. Take it, kid. Go. Run. Longy hands the bag to Izzy. Follow Izzy as he runs with the bag down the street, overlooking the third ward. Interior, Dunn's Brewery, day. Izzy opens the door. He enters. Hello? Mr. Dunn? Izzy walks through the dimly lit tap room. It's really just an old converted stable. Huge glass tanks boiling with hops and rice. Izzy turns the corner. Thin smoke drifts on the air. Something is sizzling. Frank is at the table. He's trussed up to the chair, badly beaten about the face and neck. His eyes like a broken tomato. Mr. Dunn? Frank sobs. Blood dribbles from his mouth. Get out of here, kid. Get the hell out of here. Izzy turns to leave. The sizzling sound grows louder. Izzy glances in the corner. Dynamite. Exterior, brewery, same time. The place explodes in a barrage of splintered wood and fire. Exterior, Clinton Hill, same time. The explosion rocks the neighborhood. Longy and Irving instinctively duck. They watch the fireball rise into the sky. My God. Exterior, funeral home, night. Mourners shuffle past Longy and Irving. It's raining. I can't believe Izzy's gone. Wrong place at the wrong time. What do we do now? We regroup. 
We should go in and pay our respects. You go ahead. I can't. What do you mean you can't? I'm not allowed to see a dead body. Since when? Since I'm a Cohen. A what? It's like a priest. High holy stuff. My rabbi says I'm a direct descendant of Aaron. He's our friend, Longy. I know, but I can't. I'm not allowed to see a dead body. You may be hanging around with the wrong people, you know. Longy extends his hand to Irving. Irving takes it. Longy pulls him in for a hug. Say goodbye for me. I love that kid. God knows. I will. Meet me at the hangout in the morning. Longy turns and walks off along the rain-slick streets. Interior synagogue night. Longy sits alone in the temple. He lowers his head and he prays, mumbling in Hebrew. He starts to cry, trying to control himself. His body shakes with sobbing. The rabbi stands next to him. He sits and takes Longy's hand. You lost a friend today. Longy nods. I did, rabbi. Yeah, I did. My best friend. It's a tragedy. The things that are going on in the streets today. Worst part is, I feel responsible. I'm in a dark place, rabbi. A very dark place. Well, we need to bring you out of there, Abner. I know. The trouble is, there's a lot of money in some of these dark places. Money that my family needs. Temptation. Temptation of worldly things. You need to stay on the side of good, Abner, and distance yourself from those things. I know. It's what your father would have wanted. My father. He was a good man, but he didn't know how to take care of us. Abner, what you're talking about is the quick buck. Anything it brings is fleeting and ephemeral. There's no hope in it. You can be sure it will ruin you in the end. I'm not thinking about the end right now, Rabbi. I'm thinking about the now. The rabbi rises. I won't condone a life of crime, Abner. You're more than that. I'm not asking you to. No, but you came here for some kind of solace. You want me to give you a ham-handed spiritual pass to ease your conscience, but I won't do that. Abner stares up at him. He knows the old man is right. You're all grown up now, Abner. These choices, they're yours to make now. Abner watches as the rabbi turns and walks away. I guess I'll just have to make my peace with God, then. We all will, Abner. We all will. Interior, basement hangout, day. Irving sits around the wood stove with a bunch of other boys. Longy enters. He's followed by a group of six other boys, all between the ages of 15 and 19. Jaime Kugel enters last. He's 18 with a thick neck and a head full of wavy dark hair. Irving watches as they file in. We need more, Longy? Yeah, we do. Take a seat, fellas. Anywhere you can find one. The boys sit. Fellas, this is my friend Irving, and these are our pals from Charlton Street. Irv, these guys are from up on the hill. This is Jaime Kugel. It's his gang. Okay. We'll go through more formal introductions later. So? What are they doing here, Abe? This is our club. Some club. Irving jumps up. He steps up to Jaime. You got something to say about a kid? What, you want to crack wise or something? You're tiny. I could have some fun with you. Hey, take a seat, Irv. I mean it. Irving backs down. He sits. They're here because we're going to need some help. With what? There's an empty seat at the table now, Irv. Frank Dunn is gone. And? And the numbers racket in this part of town went up in smoke with him. If we don't grab it quick, make like nothing's happened, you know, no breaks in the service, then we can claim it all for our own. You think you're just going to step in and run Frankie Dunn's numbers yourself? You, the 18-year-old piker from the Third Ward? Yeah, that's right. What do you know about it? I know everything about it, Irv. How's that even possible? Because I watch, and I listen, and I learn. Look, Irv, if you got a problem with me taking the lead on his thing, just say the word. And you'll do what exactly? Irving is smiling. Longy doesn't like it. Well, I'll run your ass right the fuck out of this club and see to it that you never make a dime in this city again. Irving stops smiling. Now, 
You're either in or you're out. Choice is yours. No, no, I'm in, Longy. I'm in. Exterior alley day. Longy and the gang walk in a large V formation. A few of the boys are holding baseball bats. Others have lengths of chain in their hands. Stay in a group, fellas. Whatever you do, don't break from this formation. If somebody goes down, go over him and get him to the back. I'm sick and goddamn tired of these Mick clowns. Don't go to them. Let the fight come to you. How do you know they'll come? Oh, they'll come all right. Longy's gang emerges from the alley. It's bedlam on the streets. Riley is in the middle of turning over a pushcart. Irish thugs are grabbing the merchants by the collars and shaking them down. Riley sees Longy and the happy ramblers coming. He lets go of the merchant he's working on and steps off the curb. His boys gather around him. Here we go. And fists and bats and chains start to fly as the two gangs go to war in the street. Exterior, Clinton Street, day. Longy has a huge black eye. He sits behind his produce stand. Jaime drops a tightly packed paper bag on the table in front of him. Good day in the morning. My best round yet. My God, these housewives got money to burn. They live in a different world, my friend. Could you imagine my mother coughing up six bits on the numbers? No, not in a million years. She could squeeze a nickel till the buffalo shits. They both laugh at this. Where's Irving? He's listening for the numbers from the racetrack. Longy totals up a man with a basket of fruit. He's in his late thirties, short with a stocky build and a face that's been in the weather too long. This is Stephen McCready. Longy looks at McCready's hands as he counts out coins. Broken hands, dry and hard. McCready hands the coins to Longy. Thanks, Mr. McCready. McCready nods. He looks over his shoulders. Something I can do for you, Mr. McCready? People in the neighborhood tell me you're the kind of guy that can get things. Longy and Jaime exchange glances. Depends on what you're looking for. I'm having trouble getting my hands on good rye. Whiskey? No, the grain. The fella I used to get it from in Jersey City. Well, he disappeared. Yeah, I can get you rye. McCready nods. You need good malt, too? Smart boy. McCready gives Jaime the once-over. I'll be in touch. McCready takes his fruit and starts off. Mr. McCready. McCready stops. Sir, I'm just curious. What line of work are you in? I'm a tin knocker. You know what that is? Yes. No. He makes things out of sheet metal. McCready smiles at Longy. The kid is sharp. Longy motions him back to the stand. McCready obliges. I'll get you all the rye and malt you need. Corn and barley, too, if you want it. Best price in town. McCready's eyes go wide. What's the catch, kid? I want to see your operation. McCready steps away from the stand. He looks Longy over, thinks about it. Deal. I'll take a hundred pounds of all four. Next Tuesday. Done. McCready shakes Longy's hand and walks away. What are you, nuts or something? What? Four hundred pounds of grain? Isn't that easy to come by? You don't even know that guy. I have a feeling, in my gut. He knows. Yeah? What does he know? That something's about to change. Interior sweet shop, day. Longy brings in a bundle of newspapers and a crate of vegetables. He places them on the counter near the register. Morning, Mr. Anderson. Tom Anderson, late 50s, ambles in from the kitchen. He wipes his hands on his greasy apron and takes the crate from the counter. Morning, kid. What do I owe you? We'll just put it on the tab until next week. That's mighty kind of you. I appreciate the credit. Don't mention it. Never knew the Jews were so easy to hand out a loan. Longy turns to see Officer Pruitt seated at the counter. He dunks his Danish in his coffee, eats it, then washes it all down. Officer Pruitt, nice to see you again. Pruitt snorts. Yeah, you too, kid. Longy approaches the counter. Pruitt's partner taps him on the shoulder as he gets up. I'm going to get a pack of smokes across the street. I'll meet you outside, right? The officer tips his hat at Longy as he sidles by. Longy nods back. Some fight we saw. Glad it was a good one. 
Let me know if you come by more tickets. My captain would like to go next time. Consider it done. I've got something better than tickets, though. Yeah? Longy pulls a white envelope from his jacket. It's thick. For the Policemen's Athletic League, we took up a collection. Longy places the envelope on the counter. This is tense. Pruitt nods. He lifts the envelope and slides it into his inside breast pocket. Well, I'm sure the kids in the neighborhood will appreciate that. There's talk of building them a baseball field in the spring. Great. Longy steps away from the counter. He stops, then doubles back slowly. I have some information if you're interested. I'm listening. There's going to be a fight. Big one. Us against Riley's gang. It's sundown today when the merchants are packing up for Sabbath. Riley's going to make a move. Where? Peshine and Runyon Street. All right, kid. We'll watch for it. I'm wondering if you could do me a favor. Interior precinct, jail cell, night. Longy sits in the cell alone. Other inmates are screaming. Drunks, drug addicts, hard criminals. An outer door opens and a shaft of light peels across the corridor floor. Put the rest of them in the tank. Let them fight it out in there for all I care. Longy stands. Pruitt appears in the corridor, dragging Riley cuffed by his arm. Pruitt unlocks the cell door and uncuffs Riley. He opens the cell and shoves Riley inside. You wanted him. You got him. Pruitt locks the cell and leaves. Riley stares Longy down. Smart. Real smart. You and me. Locked in a cage together. Two go in, one goes out. Is that it? No. Well, then what? There's a whole lot of money to be made on those streets. Money to be made selling people things they're told they can't have. Yeah. So what? That's nothing new. Do you read the papers? The funnies. Take a glance at the front page sometime. You know, the one with all the words under the bold type. Wilson's veto on the Volstead Act isn't going to hold. In six months' time, people in the United States won't be allowed to drink alcohol. For the first time, Riley is listening. Do you drink? I like a wee one every now and again, yeah. Well, the party's about to end, my friend. The thing of it is, no one wants to stop dancing. What's that got to do with me? I'm going to run this city. All of it. I think you're far more useful to me as a friend than you are an enemy. You and me. Friends? I don't think so. You'll get in my way otherwise, and then you'll be dead. You're full of shit. In five minutes, Officer Pruitt is going to come in here and let me out. If I go alone, you'll die in here. Suicide. Hang by your own belt. That's a real sin for you Catholics. Your poor mother. Riley glares at Longy. Or you'll walk out with me, and you'll retire early. It's up to you. Music up. Dissolve to exterior apartment building day. Movers haul furniture out of this Wilman house and into a waiting truck. Ella and their children follow as the last chest of drawers is carried out. She shuts the door and hands the key to an elderly gentleman. She pushes past him. Interior basement night. Longy stands with Riley and Irving as men carry in sacks of grain through a set of Bilco doors. McCready points out the workings of a huge copper still, the tubes and coils coming from the mash tank to the burner and finally to the drip catch. The walls are lined with oak casks and barrels. Interior precinct, all-purpose room, day. Pruitt stands in the rear of the room. He pulls on his dressed blue jacket. He secures the white envelope inside. A captain at a podium is speaking. He indicates Pruitt in the rear. All eyes turn to him. Pruitt strides to the podium. He salutes his captain and bows his head. The captain places a small medal around his neck. Pruitt faces the crowd of officers and stands tall. They all applaud. Exterior house, Clinton Hill. Day. Snow on the lawn. A small, beautiful tutor. Lights on inside. A fire already in the fireplace, warm and inviting. Ella and the children help the movers carry in the last of the boxes. There are four new bicycles lined up on the sidewalk. Exterior, Clinton Street. Produce stand. Day. Longy steps up to the stand. He's flanked by Jaime and Riley and some other tough-looking characters. 
He's dressed well. Long camel hair overcoat. Nice fedora. An Irish-looking kid nods at him. Longy places a handful of apples and nuts on the counter. He peels off a bill and hands it to the kid. The kid makes change, then puts Longy's produce in a big paper shopping bag. Longy looks inside. It's filled with cash and the fruit and nuts. Just making sure everything made it into the bag. It's all there, Mr. Zwillman. I know it is, kid. I trust you. Longy and his men turn to leave. Mr. Zwillman? Longy looks back. You forgot your paper. Longy reaches across his men. The kid hands Longy the newspaper. He looks at the front page, the headline, U.S. is voted dry, and Longy smiles. Fade out. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. I got to throw in a shameless plug here before I go. Um, If you like the show and you know of others who might as well, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it on your social media accounts. It will. And as always, if you or anyone you know is sitting on an idea and want to see it brought to life, please, by all means, email me at prussellsmith at mac.com. That's P-R-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-M-I-T-H at M-A-C.com. Um, I'm currently booking collaboration work for 2024, and I would love to hear from any and all interested prospective writers. So that's it. That's our show. Take care and be good to one another. Thanks.